Well, we are on the final week of a series that began in September in which we are looking at the modern lies of identity as put forward by Henry Nouwen and how the doctrine of union with Christ answered those lies. And up to now, we've looked at the lies, I am what I own, I am what I do, I am what people say about me, I am my worst moment, I am my best moment. We then did an excursus, really kind of this, this side trail at the issues of, looking at the issues of idolatry and legalism and licentiousness and how they're all related to each other. And last week, we looked at the lie, I am the captain of my soul, as kind of a, a, bonus, uh, a bonus sermon. Well, this week is also a bonus, and it's, it's the last one. And we look at an aspect that, that I think all of these lies uh, share in common and that we can't help but assume. And it's, it's really baked into our cultural assumptions, and so we don't recognize it as a problem, uh, which means that more often than not, we just take it to be uh, just the way things are. Our final lie, I am my own, doesn't merely deny that we, we belong to God. And again, in a sense, every, every lie we've looked at is a version of that denial, particularly as every lie in the series is an attempt at building a life apart from, from God. I am my own, in addition, denies that we belong to other people, that we belong to other people. And it's ironic that, as, as we've seen, we, we are desperate to measure up in other people's eyes and obtain some measure of social capital or, or status or validation among them. You know, thus my vehicle or my job or my popularity gives me meaning or value or something like that. Even as at the very same time, we, we tend to deny that other people have any real claim on us. Now, to be sure, uh, Christians do accept in various measure, some more than others, that we belong to God. I mean, it's, it's tough to get around Genesis 1 through 3's claim that we are God's image bearer or bearers or the New Testament's uh, insistence that Jesus is the one through whom and for whom all things were made, including us, and in turn, he is Lord over all things, again, including us. But even when Christians accept, again, in various measure, the vertical and transcendent relational arrangement between God and his creatures, we tend to think that's as far as that goes. And in turn, we do not belong to other people. So previous generations or our families or whatever community has no real say over me. I choose them, not the other way around. Now, can they influence me? Sure. But my participation in those communities is solely a personal decision, and typically my participation is predicated on how I feel about those groups. So is this group really benefiting me? Am I happy here? What am I getting out of this? And on and on it goes to the point that we can't help but spell team with an I. So deep do our cultural assumptions run that it rarely occurs to Christians, despite the entire witness of Scripture, that to have life with God is to have that life in shared communion with His people, too. 
And to deny this arrangement is akin to rejecting the scripture's role in shaping us or prayer or some other good gift from God. Many Christians in America do not understand that God is not merely in the business of saving individuals. He's actually, and this is key, reconstituting a people, a holy nation centered on Jesus and that salvation is for the purpose of being counted among them. So just as to be an Israelite in the Old Testament assumed a body of people called Israel that were in covenant together with God, so too does being a Christian assume a body of people called the church who have life and covenant together through Jesus and the Spirit. So to speak about life with God or your Christian walk or growth in Christ or merely to call yourself a Christian while taking God's people lightly is not merely at odds with the assumptions of both the Old and New Testament's understanding of what a human is, it's at odds with the gospel itself. Well, our passage this morning is, in a certain sense, all of Ephesians, but as it's not practical to read that entire book right now, I'm using chapter 4 Uh, Verses 1 through 16 is really kind of a staging ground. I'm not going to hit it in any great detail, but it is uh, deeply influential for understanding, my understanding of how we we come to this topic. So Ephesians chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. This is Paul speaking. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift, Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's go to him again in prayer. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that we are members of Christ's body, and he is our head, and we are held together by his spirit and that is no small thing lord we pray that your spirit would be amongst us right now giving us eyes to see and ears to hear 
that we might grow in our knowledge of our identity in Christ, that we might grow to maturity, as Paul so longs for here, that we might be a people who love one another and even loves the world. We pray all of this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Well, for as long as I can personally remember, the warning bells about the decline of Christianity have been sounding at nearly constant rates among pastors and church leaders. So as opposed to, say, I don't know, being a Christian among oppression, like, say, what you get with ISIS or the Taliban or something like that, the alarm is not so much over external threats, though there are clearly real threats in America to his people. It's really about the shrinking of various church bodies in America. So while Christianity is growing at rapid pace all over the world, in America, among people like us, church buildings are emptying. And of course, the reasons for this are complex, far more complex than I would ever care to lay out in a sermon. But even so, for example, some people, you know, probably more than we would like to admit, have been harmed by church leadership and the cover-ups to protect those abusive leaders. And this is happening in churches across our country. So, for example, in this denomination right now, the trial happened this week, there's a major trial happening uh, over a sexually abusive pastor and how many in his church and presbytery, that is, pastors, moved to protect him and to cover it up. Uh, There are many people who are seriously, for example, struggling with depression and anxiety, among other things. So coming to church is incredibly difficult, and when they come, it is a, a real act of courage to deal with what uh, they have been dealing with for a long time and to make it to places like this. Even so, though I have no ready-at-hand data on this, if I were a betting man, I would wager that most, all the things I, I just said aside, most of the winnowing we've witnessed over the last 40 years was exponentially sped up by way of the pandemic. That is, the pandemic was the excuse, really the event that Many Christians needed to just go ahead and act on what they have felt and believed for a long time, that church is is largely irrelevant for them. American Christians already pursue discipleship on a largely individualistic uh, basis with Bible reading plans or books or conferences or podcasts, you name it. And and now we we can just check out a service online or you know, watch a sermon on YouTube and never be bothered with having to engage with God on his terms or together with his people. And the assumption of the last 400 years is that at root, religion, Christianity maybe especially, is a deeply personal thing that we cultivate on our own terms, unencumbered by other people. And so deep does this go that really in many ways scholars think this is at the heart of our political economy, if not our civil discourse and what we assume. It's just me and Jesus, just the two of us. And as popular thinking goes, we don't need the church to be spiritual. We don't need organized religion. I can do spiritual all on my own. So if it's convenient for me to show up to church, I will. If not, there's, there's resources I can use later in the week or next month or whenever I get around to it. And what I'm describing here is something I've, I've encountered in every single church I've ever spent any amount of time in. 
And so what I'm describing here is not unique to Butler County. I felt it in St. Louis County. I felt it in Hamilton County. And the geographical difference between those is eight hours in a car. Even so, to put this in perspective, within our own church, next September, Labor Day, will mark a decade in this church for me as your pastor. And over that time, our numbers have relatively stayed the same. You know, we've lost people, we've gained people. People have moved, people have died, people have left the, the church in a huff. But, but for just about every loss, we, we've gained people. And for a small town in Alabama, that's big. That's a really big deal. But even as our numbers have stayed largely the same, attendance and participation in the life of the church is not. Attendance is erratic and unpredictable. And week to week, I, I have no idea. The session has no idea uh, what to expect or even really how to plan. And it used to be, you know, we could assume high points and low points for attendance that largely followed the school calendar, but that, that simply isn't true anymore. So if it's not football season, it's deer season. It's the holidays, and there's, there's always a holiday. It's spring break. It's the summer. It's raining. It's sunny. For example, Sunday school attendance is at a 10-year low. You know, at one point, about four or five years ago, four or five years ago now, so before the pandemic, I floated the idea to the session that we get rid of Sunday school altogether because the amount of work teachers were putting in, especially for kids, seemed to be a total waste of time and resources. After all, Sunday school is not mandated in Scripture. It's a tool that came into fashion in the early 20th century, so if it's not working and people aren't showing up, why not? Why continue you know, to beat a dead horse? But the question came, well, what, what could replace it? What other educational tool might we be able to come up with that people would actually show up for or respond to? And as I've expressed to the session in the diaconate, my fear is that this church will remain financially solvent for generations to come, but there won't be any generations to inhabit it. And the issue is not for a lack of programs. We have plenty of them. And in our, our alarm, you know, we, we dare not become a seeker-sensitive church where we try to make church more relevant or palatable to get people in our doors. You know, over the course of my lifetime, which I'm, I'm 49 years old, so this is really going back to the 70s, over the course of my lifetime, churches have sought to keep pace with the culture and took on the strategy of entertaining and catering to people, in particular kids and their parents. And they in turn, well, they bought what we were selling. So videos and games, are they're way more fun than some middle-aged balding pastor talking about the meaning of an ancient book and the glory of a God we can't see. You know, it's why I was considered by many parents to be an abysmal youth pastor when I was one. I'm simply not a good party planner and spent way too much time talking about Jesus. And as many churches have come to recognize, if we aren't entertaining people, you know, I, I really don't like that teacher. Music doesn't really resonate with me. It's hard to get to church by 10 a.m. It's so early. Then they will find better entertainment elsewhere. 
So what you win people with is what you've won them to. But even if you were lucky enough to escape the youth group mindset that has been prevalent for four decades, still, even the most committed Christians can't help but treat church as if it's voluntary, akin to a Netflix subscription. It's voluntary in the sense that it's my choice, or my feelings, or what I think I'm getting out of it that's fundamental to my participation. If I wanna go, I'll go. If it's not feasible, whatever that means, I won't go. Now, I'm not talking about issues of sickness or emergencies or for those who must work on the Sabbath, like say a firefighter or police officers or physicians on call or or whatever. No, I mean, it's not feasible in the sense that it just doesn't fit with what I want to do with my life or my time or my desires or how I've planned my week. I am my own. Don't tread on me. Or in the uh, prophetic words of George Michael, I don't belong to you and you don't belong to me. Freedom. As you can gather, though, from the reading from Ephesians 4, and all of Ephesians is like this, Paul sees things differently. Paul never makes an argument for people joining the church because he doesn't have to. He doesn't have to. It's baked into what it is to be a Christian. So just just go read the Old Testament. God always covenants with people, plural. And And when he does covenant with an individual, like say Noah or Abraham, David, Jesus, it's always because those individuals represent their people. So the reason we require vows for church membership is not because we are like a cell phone provider wanting to lock you up in a contract for the next three years. No, it's based on what we see in the Bible and from the earliest church practices. So Paul assumes that of course the people of God will be the defining social institution of every believer's life. And participation in this group is non-negotiable, with one whole day being devoted to worship, rest, and fellowship with the people of God, which, of course, is the fourth commandment. As an aside, I've often thought about why breaking the fourth commandment carried the death penalty under the law of Moses. Think about that. Sabbath breaking carried the death penalty under Moses. As Genesis 1 makes clear, six days in the Sabbath is how God structured the world. It's part of his created order, along with everything you learn in physics. That's part of it. And in turn, it's by this same created pattern that God's people will structure their time and creative work in imitation of God's own life. And within this created pattern, God did not make isolated individuals. It was not good that the man was alone. He made humanity, and humanity, as God's image bearers, find life in gathering with God together in his sanctuary and define all of life in communion with him from that point. So despite Adam's rejection of this patterning, that's Genesis 3, God has never let go of it. Genesis 1 and Exodus 19 apply just as much to us as it did to Moses or Abraham or Adam. And to reject this pattern of six days and Sabbath is to reject, one, the created order itself, the structure of the universe. Think about that. 
And then two, God's word for his people, which is by implication then, to reject his word is to choose death. To put it differently and to show just how important living in the pattern of God's created order is, the same sinful, autonomous, self-defining impulses, you know, I am my own, that drives the transgender movement and rejection of God and his created order is also at work among some Christians who believe in God, claim his name, and yet choose to define the Sabbath or the patterning of their life as they see fit now. Clearly, the trans movement and Sabbath-rejecting Christians are very different kinds of people, and yet they share the same sinful impulse of rejecting God's created order and his word for their lives. And what they share in common is the assumption that I am my own, or it's my body, or it's my feelings, or it's my time. Now put more positively, leading up to our passage, passage Paul interweaves three ways of talking about or of describing the people of God that are intended to show us what a gift it is to be included in God's people. So the obvious first is that this group of people is called the church. The Greek term Paul uses here has the idea of a, a publicly recognizable group that assembles, that assembles, that comes together. Church in Paul's day had a political connotation to it in the sense that it was a readily recognizable group that assembles within the polis, you know, the city. That's where we get politics from. So it's not a mob. It's not a family in the genetic sense of that word. It's not a guild. It's not a business or a school. And it's certainly not a Zoom meeting. It's an easily identifiable people gathered together for a unique political purpose. As Paul speaks of it, the church is the visible manifestation of God's kingdom, devoted to the rule of Jesus Christ over all things. So if you want to see God's kingdom in the flesh, his kingdom covers everywhere, but if you want to see it in the flesh, go to church. Go to where God's people assemble together with him. You see, claiming Jesus is Lord is never figurative or a metaphor or merely spiritual. It's a pledge of allegiance to his dominion over this world. It's why Christians were persecuted for denying Caesar Augustus the claim that he was the son of God and prince of peace, which by the way, he claimed to be. And they insisted, no, 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 those titles go to Jesus alone. It's why in both chapters one and three of Ephesians, Paul says that Jesus is head over the church and in turn, the church is a witness to the powers and principalities that's both in the flesh and spiritual that Jesus reigns over all things. So in a certain sense, the Roman Empire understood this assembly and what was being said about Jesus better than some modern Christians understand it. Now the second description is that this group is called Christ's body. That's all over chapter two. And the basic idea is that God the Father through Jesus was reconciling humanity to himself through Christ's body. That clearly is a, a reference to his, 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 his death and resurrection, but it's also a reference 
to union with Christ. So as Paul argues, we are not merely united to Christ as individuals, though that's, that's true. Through the Spirit, we are united to each other too. It's why Paul makes the argument in 1 Corinthians that individual Christians engaging with temple prostitutes were defiling Christ's body, that is, the church. You know, we tend to think that my sin only affects me. But as conservative social commentators have made a habit of saying for the last 30 years, and rightly so, what happens in the bedroom never stays there. So it is not merely individuals that become one spirit with Christ. That's 1 Corinthians 6.17. All of us become one spirit with him together. And again, God does not enter into covenant with individuals. He enters into covenant with his people. And the new covenant in Jesus is not for you alone. It's why in chapter 4, Paul hammers home, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called into the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and all. So keep in mind, all those yous, they're y'alls. They're all plural. So you cannot read that passage correctly and just have you in mind. You must be thinking of the people of God because that's what Paul intends. It's why what fundamentally unites the people of God is not doctrine. Though Doctrine is clearly important. No, we are united together in Christ first through the Spirit. It's why to join this church, you don't have to hold to every last thing Presbyterians believe. What we look for is a confession of faith in Christ Jesus and evidence of the Spirit's work in your life. And our church vows reflect that. It's why, unlike the world... We can disagree and still maintain our communion. The world finds commonality through shared skills or passions or interests or uniforms or whatever. What unites God's people is our literal union with Christ together. It's why the church is the most diverse group of people the world has ever known. We are all indwelled by the same spirit and by virtue of being in one spirit with Christ, we are in one spirit with each other. And you get the picture in chapter 2, and this is the book of Galatians as well, that a huge part of the gospel is the recovering of what was lost at Babel. The Jew and Gentile have been made into one family, one body that supersedes our natural families, and we are now one body united together in Christ. So as many of you have personally experienced, you may be closer to people in your church, in his body, than your own blood relatives because the union you have through the Spirit is greater than blood. It's why when we partake of the Lord's Supper, it's a meal of unity with both God and each other. And as Paul makes clear in 1 Corinthians, some people in that church in Corinth had died because they refused to recognize, they refused to live by the fundamental union of the body of Christ and his spirit and in turn rejected the body of their Lord and ate and drank judgment unto themselves. They did that by rejecting their brothers and sisters. That's how serious Jesus, the head, takes his body. 
The third description we find in Ephesians is that this group is a temple. It's a temple. Here's what Paul says starting in 2.18. He, he writes, For through him, that is Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Again, when you read this, all those yous are y'alls. Y'all are no longer strangers and aliens, but belong to God's people, his church, his royal household, his body. Y'all are part of the structure built on Christ himself that grows together into a holy temple in the Lord. There is no greater institution than that. There is no greater communion than this. Are you indwelled by the Spirit individually? Yes. Yes. But like how Paul talks about the spiritual gifts... This is not for your blessing alone. No, it's for the purpose and privilege of coming together with God's people and becoming a dwelling place for God by the Spirit and in turn blessing one another. So when people say, and this has been a popular thing for a long time, when people say church is not a building, it's a people. Yeah, that, that's right. The church building, the church building exists for the Sabbath purpose of one, bringing the church together for assembly, which is the visible manifestation of the kingdom of God and the political declaration that Jesus is Lord to the powers and principalities. And two, so that the one body of Christ united to Jesus and to each other through the Spirit who enables the fellowship of the saints in anticipation of the life to come, may gather together in celebration with their Lord. And three, so that this assembly, this body, can in turn grow into the structure of the holy temple, greater even than what Solomon enjoyed as the dwelling place of God. If that sounds high and lofty and huge, it's because it is. It's because it is. That the world would look at us this morning and what we are doing here in this church and mock it and say, really? All those descriptions, that's what's happening here? That's to be expected. The powers mocked Jesus on his cross too. And to be sure, God's people are a royal mess. God doesn't invite perfect people. He invites sinners, and he knows exactly what he's doing. His people are a royal mess. No, what matters, what you must believe, is how God says things are. And y'all are his church, his body, his holy temple, and the place together where God has chosen to dwell with his people. Now, the entire point of this sermon series, really of what, 10, 11 sermons, has been to tell you over and over again who you are. You are in Christ. And Christ is in you. To go a step further, y'all are in Christ. And Christ is in y'all. And that's a privilege. It's a gift to be in union with God with these people. I think, and this is Paul's point in Ephesians 4, is that the rest of your life is spent really growing in this personal knowledge of this 
reality together. The depth of who you are in Christ knows no end. It is something that should surprise us and move in us until the day we die and we see him face to face and then we will be blown away. So how does that happen though? How does that happen? How do you learn to let go of all these lies? All the little whispers that continually say, I am the captain of my soul. I am my own. It's my life. How do you learn to no longer be conformed to the pattern of this world and instead be renewed in your mind, learning to discern what is good and acceptable and perfect? Commit yourself to the people of God that you are already a part of. Submit yourself to his created order of six days and a Sabbath rest with his people because it is in this assembly, in this fellowship, in this body, in this temple that God will grow you in himself. I want you to notice I have resisted, go back and listen, I have resisted application for 10 Sundays. This is the first one. This is the first one. Commit yourself to the body he has already made you a part of. See, God has so ordered life with him that you need these particular people to grow in him. And in turn, these people need you. Do you need the word? Yes. Do you need prayer? Yes. And you need those things in community with God and his people. So you cannot possibly hope to grow in the fruit of the Spirit if you refuse to put yourself where God has committed himself to be working through his Spirit. It's like what Michael Foster recently said. He, he writes, Nothing grows a Christian like a serious commitment to a single church week in and week out for years and years. Not conferences, not social media, not even personal devotions. The local church is where mature Christians are slowly forged in the fires of mundane faithfulness. So don't come here to be entertained or even for the mere purpose of personal growth. That's what the world has taught us to value. No, come because you're indwelled by the Spirit. Christ is in you, and God has called you to be in communion with these people for their benefit and for yours. So church is never primarily about you. It's not about what you're getting out of it. It's not about whether you feel like going or not. No, what was lost with Adam and Eve in the garden has been restored to you and in greater depth. That's Ephesians 4 in a nutshell. How do you fight against your, your heart? or fight against the lies of identity waging war of you, like Abraham and Moses, is by responding to God's leading and choosing to participate in God's people, trusting that in that communion, whether you can feel it or not, and frankly, you can't always feel it, or whether you can, you can measure it or not. Am I really growing? I don't know that God is working in you to grow you more and more in Christ and in turn is actually using you, whether you could tell or not, for the benefit of others. See, each of you is a gift. That's, that's Paul. Each of you is a gift given by God for the benefit of this community, this one. Your very presence here is enough. It's enough. It's good that you are here. And we all benefit because of you. So when Paul speaks of the growth of the body, the goal is not productivity. 
A lot of churches mistake the spiritual gifts as tools for building a bigger numerical church or creating more programs or whatever. I'm not against those things, but that's not the point. No, as Paul says in 4:14 through 16, the goal is maturity expressing itself through love. And I've prayed that for this church for a long time. And I'm incredibly hopeful. Now, at the time, though, I was frustrated that the session did not agree to get rid of Sunday school. And if you don't think a pastor can lose a vote, well, I lost. And I'll be frank, there are many Sunday mornings still when I walk down the hallway from my office, and just from a personal standpoint, I'm disappointed by the attendance or say on a Wednesday evening when the fellowship hall seems empty. But I have to keep in mind that while some of you might not like me all that much, I get that, or might not care for some of the programs, that's not the issue. The issue is the war raging in each of our hearts, mine included. Mine included, that I am my own. And so I'm, I'm glad I lost that vote. I'm glad those older men had the wisdom to say, no, Rob, we're not doing that. I think the session was right to keep Sunday school for the simple fact that when, as people united together in Christ, the conviction comes alive that we want to grow into maturity. Things like Sunday school, and it's not the only thing, but things like Sunday school, they will be here for whoever wants it. Again, I have a ton of hope for this church. I have a ton of hope for this church because I trust God is at work in it, and I can see it. I can see it in you, that he is at work. Well, we began this sermon series with the Heidelberg Catechism. And so it's only appropriate if we end with the Heidelberg Catechism. It says this, My only comfort in life and in death is that I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ by his Holy Spirit assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Christ is in you. You are in him. That is who you are. May we, may we grow and the knowledge of that reality together. I need you. We need each other. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, you are good, and your steadfast love endures forever. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for the gift of fellowship in this body. I pray all of this in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen.